This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. For the Wild is brought to you in part by the Calliopeia Foundation. We are grateful for their continued support and the support of grassroots contributions from listeners like you. Learn more at calliopeia.org. To make a donation, visit forthewild.world/donate or find us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us in other ways, consider sharing our episodes through social media or leaving us a review wherever you listen to the podcast. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today I'm speaking with Samuel Jensaw III. No matter where you're from in this world, you come from this world. You come from somewhere. You have roots to this planet, this living being that we're all walking and we're all a part of. So we have to acknowledge that. And even if your roots are based in colonization, even if your grandfather was a straight killer, you have to admit that. You have to live with that. You have to grow from that and not let it define who you are today, but let it inspire you to invest in the next generation so nobody has to experience that. Samuel Jensaw III is the founding director of the award-winning Ancestral Guard program. Currently, he is the youngest person to serve as the vice chairman of the Yurok Tribe's Natural Resources Committee. He and fellow Ancestral Guard members are featured in the documentary Gather, which focuses on the growing movement among Native Americans to reclaim their spiritual, political, and cultural identities through food sovereignty. Well, Samuel, thank you so much for joining us on For the Wild podcast. I've been really excited to speak to you since I saw you in the film Gather, which everybody should go watch if they haven't already. Um, I'm sure a lot of you have, so watch it a second time. (laughs) And um, yeah, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, I'm really honored to be here and share a space with like-minded people because that's how we're going to build towards, you know, uh, common goals. So I'm thankful to be here and share my story with you and your people. Mm, Thank you, Samuel. So I want to begin this conversation talking about the Yurok lands, and they envelop around what we know as the Klamath River and the Pacific Coast. So for listeners who are joining us from afar, I wonder if you could begin by introducing us to this place through the sights smells and sounds of the surrounding forest lands, lagoons, estuaries, and seascapes. Yeah, so Northern California, I I love so much, you know, I've had the opportunity to grow up in the same village as my grandfather and his grandfather and drink from the same creek straight up the estuary of the Klamath River. And when I close my eyes and I think about the mouth of the Klamath River, I feel that cold rush of ocean water as it mixes in with a little bit of warmer temperature river water and you can just hear the seals, sea lions and 
pups just living their best life down there at the mouth of the river. And right now it's eland season. So the Pacific lamprey are swimming up the river. This is an ancient species that's older than salmon actually. And it's been coming here for thousands of years. You know, and luckily we have the ability to harvest these fish, these ancient fish and provide for our families. So right now that's what's thinking, that's what's on my mind. And uh, often when I schedule meetings, it's uh, scheduled around the tides and what fishing season it is. <laughs> so you get, um, everybody's pretty lucky the fish aren't running today. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Well, that was so beautiful. Thank you for grounding us in place. And I'm familiar with those lands just a bit north of me and am so moved by the grandeur and beauty of this place and yeah, just speaking about the river as you just did, the abundance of the Klamath River has been severely restricted since the late 1700s by way of mining, logging, and damming. Now, for example, this river was once home to the third largest salmon run in the lower 48. Now, Northern California is risking the collapse of the entire salmon population. So as a Yurok fisherman, can you speak to the history of the Klamath and how the runs have been historically impacted by colonial development across the West? As I said earlier, I'm thankful to be raised up in the same village that my great-grandfather was raised in and his father and his father since the beginning of time and right at the estuary of the Klamath River. You know, drinking from the same creeks, eating from the same prairies, it's, it's, it's a real blessing to be able to have that connection and this river has been providing for our people since the beginning of time and when we say that we say that often but we don't realize is that some of these oral traditions that are shared amongst our people go back to way back when there was ice shelves along you know mountain ridges and that they say that there was only this little pocket of life thankfully for because of the redwood trees the ancient redwood trees that protected us and so since the beginning of time, since some of our earliest stories, we have the systems of reciprocity with the natural world in order. And that's kind of sustained our lives throughout the years. Whether it be modern colonization that we're facing today with political plans and you know agendas that don't fit the needs of the people of Northern California, or whether it be a couple hundred years ago when they thought gold was you know just everywhere up here and turns out it wasn't. And then people started, instead of making money off digging gold, people were making money from clearing the lands of indigenous people and that land then being gifted to them by the government. So these lands and these systems of reciprocity has carried our people through unimaginable burdens. And these people who have made that journey throughout these lifetimes have built the society that we know today in Northern California. And if you look across America, I truly believe that America was built on the backs of indigenous people under the blood, sweat, and tears of indigenous people from all around the world. And if you look around today in America, the American dream is being kept alive by indigenous people from all around the world. So this connection that we have with the earth as a living organism and understanding that we need to carry these values of world renewal with us on a daily basis and understanding that if we do not continue these systems of reciprocity with this earth, then 
there will be no system to maintain. And that's kind of the driving force behind why salmon are so important to us. Because salmon, everybody knows salmon are a keystone species. You know, a lot of people don't know that salmon have nurtured the forest around the rivers for thousands of years and developed this unique landscape to what it is today. All this beauty that we see around us, all life stems from the earth, the beginning water, you know, that first water has led to all life on earth. And so we respect and acknowledge this on a daily basis. And that kind of guides our work in our hand every day. Hmm. Thank you so much for sharing that. And your words were really moving to hear. And yeah, across the so-called United States, there's been a swell in movement to finally remove dams that have been causing harm for decades. And after a 20-year battle, the Klamath River dams will finally be removed by 2023, restoring salmon access to more than 400 miles of habitat. So can you share with us any important updates or perhaps just general reflections on the kind of commitment and uh, perseverance it has taken to push for the largest dam removal project in U.S. history? People have been risking their lives to ensure that our children have access to healthy opportunities. And it's always been like this. When it comes to these dams on the Klamath River, it's like slowly being spoon-fed poison. And the impacts that it's had on our community have been detrimental to our health, to you know our traditions, our daily culture. And the people who have carried on that battle and made it possible for me to enter into a culture of not only resistance, but dedication for you know next generation of people that we haven't even met yet. To be able to step into that space, I'm grateful because I started organizing around the Undown the Klamath Coalition, I mean, the Undown the Klamath Movement when I was 14 years old. And at that point in my life, I had no idea what I wanted to do, I had no idea who I was, but I knew as a fisherman that I needed a healthy river and I needed healthy land to sustain my way of life. And that's why I dedicated my time from the time I was 14 to right now to making sure that, you know, I'm doing everything I can for these dams to come down. And I'm just a super small part of a, of a whole system that's been at play because these dams have been on our river for around a hundred years. And in that time frame, we've seen salmon runs, you know, dwindle into nothing, lamprey numbers dwindle into nothing, green sturgeon dwindle into nothing. These aren't only food. These aren't only, you know, species that are swimming up our river. These are opportunities to connect local humans, local people of Northern California to the importance of why we should respect this place. Every time there's a salmon that cannot be caught by someone up here, that's an opportunity that somebody loses to be connected to this place. It's not just about harvesting. It's not just about putting food on the table. It's all about developing a mindset within this next generation that allows them to utilize the knowledge and skills of a fisherman, of a bow maker, of a regalia maker, 
of a singer, of a traditional dancer, use a lot, utilizing these skills and lessons that they learn at a young age in adulthood. So when they're making decisions on their own, they can look back and say, I learned patience from setting my net. You know, I learned discipline from building this regalia. I'm going to apply these values and these skills to these obstacles that I'm facing today. And a loss of opportunity to do that means that these children, this next generation, they will have problems that they will face um, continually. And without that support, you know, the outcome is not going to be the best. But if we ensure that children have an opportunity to live in a place that provides for their education, that provides for their health care, that provides for their child care, for provides for them their whole life experience as a whole, the river does that. Our lands do that. These ceremonies do that. So it creates less stress on a system that has been designed to care for our children in America. So we have all kinds of social workers that are overburdened right now. We have all kinds of health workers that are overburdened right now. And we live in a time where people don't have access to traditional spots. We're still fighting for access to our hunting grounds. We're still fighting for access to our fishing grounds. And that's why it's so important that we continue that fight and we continue to make sure that our children have these opportunities because if they don't, then their children will have these opportunities and then their children will have these opportunities. But if we do stand up and we do fight and we do stand our ground for what we believe in and what we love, then it's going to set that example for this future generation. And it will be the common ground that we stand on is a common belief that we need this place and we need this place to be healthy so our people can continue our way of life. Mm. There is so much good stuff in that last response. Thank you for taking us there. And yeah, this conversation also reminds me about the length of restoration and the work that follows in the aftermath, both in terms of physical river restoration, the length of time required for salmon population to increase, but also the remediation of ancestral territories and the heart and spirit that is intertwined with the river and how that relationship changes and, and can strengthen. So I wonder if you'd be willing to share what you think long-term restoration will look like in your life and for the next generation after the dams come down. Yeah, I'm glad you talk about that because, you know, it reminds me of the first time that we went to the Amazon rainforest and when we first reached out to us and, you know, they told us there's tribes that wanted to talk to us, to speak to us. We had no idea. We weren't a nonprofit organization. We weren't, you know, too organized at that point. And it was really shocking to me. And I was really scared because not to go, but what do I tell these people? They requested us from, you know, so far away. We're traveling three different uh, planes to get there, nine hours by boat to get to this village. And we get there, the first question they ask is, how are we still alive after a dam's been built on our river for a hundred years when they are feeling the effects within days? And I was dumbstruck. I didn't know what to say at that moment in time, but I realized that 
merely living our life as indigenous people on this river system in Northern California and fighting for our right to do so has led by example to the point where we are now connected with indigenous people from all around the world who are fighting for the same opportunity to provide healthy learning experiences for their children. And we realized that colonization, some people believe it just happened. Or, you know, colonization is something like an event or you know, something, just a piece of policy that has been changed. And so we don't have to worry about it no more and people need to get over it. I don't know how many times I've had that conversation with people, but in reality, colonization is an ever evolving process. It's a culture that is ripping through indigenous lands right now as we speak. The same tools of engagement were used in Northern California in the early uh, 1900s and late 1800s. Those same tools are being implemented across indigenous lands in Brazil. They're being implemented in indigenous lands across Malaysia, across Chile. And our people are facing the same colonization that completely destroyed our way of life. And that's where we can find common ground. And that's where we can unite and say, what's working for us in our community may also work for you in your community. And that's with understanding that you can pass and you can live with the values of indigenous people without appropriating the culture. Because so many people, especially in modern day scholars, you know, and everybody, they they get traditions and culture all muddled up into the same thing. They think it's the same thing. But in reality, they're very different. The traditions are the things that our grandparents did, that their grandparents did, and their grandparents did, and their grandparents did for thousands of years. And traditions are the things that we will continue to do for the next couple of thousand years. Now, culture, culture is constantly evolving and changing, and it's life, and it's happening right now around us. And every day it's different. Every year it changes and evolves. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to get this, our families to involve growing their own food, um, having access to fresh organic produce and having access to the knowledge they need to teach their children. We're trying to get that into the daily culture. So if we can get these foods like lettuce and tomatoes and you know greens and potatoes and all these things that aren't traditional foods if we can get these to become cultural foods first and so they're a part of our living experience so when these young parents are building these into their daily culture and into their daily lives it becomes culture and it becomes tradition to the next generation so although they're completely different they're often connected and that's where it gets kind of muddled together. So having a clear line between the two has helped us identify easier methods of implementing our programming into the community. Hmm. Oh, that's so good to hear. And I want to talk more about these gardens and the organic food and um, all that you just spoke to. But before we get to that, I wanted to bring up that in many conversations I've had on the program, I've been reminded that the environmental movement cannot simply adapt 
traditional ecological knowledge for climate ad- adaptation or, or and mitigation, you know, without ensuring that indigenous people are physically in charge of and on the land to implement these practices. And this is certainly something that is coming up in California with regards to cultural burning. But I also think about this in context to the Yurok who have endured significant dispossession via timber corporations and the national park systems. So as an introduction to Ancestral Guard, can you speak to the importance of renewal and reconnection to resources amidst a system that has chronically mismanaged the land? Yeah. So I believe if you are part of conservation effort and that effort does not put indigenous people at the forefront of the decision-making process, if that organization is not implementing traditional uh, ecological knowledge and working with the indigenous people of that area, you are a part of modern colonization. And that's a hard fact to swallow. And I'm not saying everything you've ever done has been evil or, you know, not with the best intentions, but it goes back to being able to adapt to modern values of indigenous people without appropriating the culture. And there's only one way to do that. And that's not inclusion, because even saying inclusion means that this whole process belongs to you and you're bringing us to your table. Because right now, a hundred, so every climate issue that we're facing on this earth today, I guarantee you 100% of the solutions are sitting within the preschools and elementary schools of tribal nations from across the world. And that's where our focus needs to be. You cannot go back, you cannot change time, but you can change your mindset today. You can change your value systems today, right now. You can decide that you want to take that step from acknowledging that just adapting indigenous terms and you know taking indigenous culture and applying it to your programming isn't enough. Land acknowledgement isn't enough. We have to take that next step and restore these natural systems of reciprocity with the earth that have been in play for thousands and thousands of years. And that's the thing with American culture that always gets me is that Americans just think, you know, they came to this pristine place that was just ripe for the taking and that it would be forever giving because there was so much. But in reality, it's taken thousands and thousands of years of, you know, data collection and implementing harvest management programs and ensuring that our children understand that taking and basically general capitalism will not support our way of life and that we need a system that has roots to these places. We need to restore these existing systems. We cannot recreate these systems. We have to go back and acknowledge that indigenous communities hold the answers and solutions to their problems. So many times scholars come into communities with answers. They come in with years of experience and they try to force these answers upon communities. You know, 
And I just realized through our connection with UC Davis that it's not always like that. We've had such an amazing opportunity with, you know, Catherine Kim at UC Davis, a professor who's dedicated time and energy into making sure that our people have the necessities to collect data, credible data, and utilize that within our own systems for our own programming and our own people. Again, you just brought so much beautiful reflection. And I wanted to bring up that one of the Ancestral Guard's recent endeavors is the Victorious Gardens program. And for listeners who are unfamiliar, they might be surprised to hear that food apartheid exists in places like Northern California, because so often the narrative focuses on food apartheid in urban settings, not rural locations as well. So can you share with us more about the Victorious Garden program and what is being grown and at what scale? There was thousands of dollars like that was supposed to be brought into our community at one point in time to help with food security. But in reality, all that money got absorbed into outside organizations who came in here, collected their own data for their own different organizations, and then spent thousands of more dollars telling us that we live in a food desert and there was no solutions brought to the table. So, you know, it's like, we have to realize that indigenous people hold the solutions to their own problems. And I say that again and again and again, because when it comes to food sovereignty and what we're doing with our food is it's not, originally it wasn't a food sovereignty initiative. What we did is we asked indigenous youth we were floating down a river one day my brother john luke he's here with me today and uh he could tell you all about it when we just first started teaching kids on how to fish properly with the right mentality so you know they can take care of themselves and their families and it was because a bus didn't show up one day that's how the true start of our food security initiative and our whole ancestral guard programming because when the bus don't show up on the res it doesn't let anybody know it just doesn't show up so we had all these kids left over and uh my brother john luke he he was his friends that they brought they brought them in and they wanted to learn how to go fishing and um so we did that i got my buddy together and we borrowed a bunch of boats and equipment 
from a bunch of neighbors and told them what we're doing. And everybody was so supportive in our community. And we took these kids fishing. And before we did that, we had to teach them how to row and teach them how to set net and do all these things. And it was like a peer-to-peer with my brothers because they're like fishing machines. But they were to stand there, give them the guidance, give them the, you know, everything they needed to make it happen. And then as we're going down the river, all my training as a community organizer started to kick in. I said, whoa, this is a prime opportunity right here. Because, you know, I've spent my whole life dedicated to providing healthy opportunities for my people since I've been in trainings all up and down the West Coast and across the United States um, since I was 13, 14 years old. And at that moment in time, I seen a piece of cardboard floating around. So I grabbed it and I grabbed this Sharpie and I started asking all the kids, you know, what is it you want to see in your community? What is it that you'd like to see? And I wrote down what they said. So we decided to focus on our food security initiative. And through that, we developed the Victorious Gardens Initiative, originally drawing inspiration from what the indigenous youth said they'd like to have as a part of a food security system. And then going, rolling over and adopting programming from the United States government when they were at war, because we're constantly at war every day. So I wanted to bring those values in to the programming. And that's what we did. So we created the Victorious Gardens Initiative, which is modeled off Victory Gardens. And if you're not familiar with Victory Gardens, that's a whole nother podcast. And uh, it's definitely worth a Google. But it's basically, it's when the United States kind of mandated everybody to grow a garden to provide for themselves in rough times because we couldn't supply for everybody. And even people grew gardens and they supplied food for um, military people. So taking those same concepts, we wanted to develop gardens that were privatized because we realized that community gardens are not the solution in rural Northern California because a majority of the time, the people who are doing the most work are not the people that are reaping the benefits of the harvest. And also we see that a lot of people don't have access to be able just to drive to a community garden because we're so sprawled out that it takes 20 minutes to even show up to the community gardens, 20 minute drive there, 20 minute drive back, you know, for a lot of people and just, they don't have the time. They don't have the money. They don't have the resources to do it. So we see a lot of community gardens just kind of fade away and kind of like become kind of like an eyesore in our communities. So we realized that and we decided that's not what the energy that we wanted to go with. By that time, community gardens are really starting to blow up. So, you know, we took a lot of licks on that saying that we didn't want to do community gardens. But then we, once we got support to develop our system, to develop this system that was, you know, designed and engineered by indigenous youth, that we had the opportunity to implement these privatized garden experiences for our community. So we're setting up all local uh, garden boxes in our community. For instance, we have a community of 20 here in this little um, Yurok housing block. So all 20 households have a six foot garden bed that's four foot wide and is filled with hue culture uh, style soil. So it's living soil that We've built the soil right in front of the eyes of every person and talked to them through the experience of why we're putting wood chips in there, why it's so important that, you know, we have a living soil. And then we're coming through and we're putting in organic 
plant starts from a local nursery, and then also offering an assisted gardening service for families where we come through at least once a week and make sure that they have a maintained that they're maintaining a healthy garden to ensure a healthy harvest. And the reason why we're doing this is yes, we want to provide our people with fresh vegetables and greens and so they have access in this place where it's technically a food desert. But the real reason why we're doing it is because this is a first step of our zero to three program, which we call the seedling society, where we have new mothers sign their babies up for the ancestral guard as you know, young as not even born yet. They can sign their baby up for the ancestral guard. They get a garden box. We take care of them. We also provide Zoom meeting services for any cultural questions or mentoring that they would ever need. And we're doing this because we realize if we want people to stand up for their rights and not be worried about the food that's in their fridge or being able to provide them for their families, we have to start with a whole new generation of people. We have to ensure that there's babies alive today that don't know what it's like to come from a household that doesn't have a garden or access to fresh nutritional produce. And that's the goal because we want these children to grow up with the same experience that most people who are gardening today have. And that is that their auntie, their uncle, their grandma, their father, somebody in their family that they loved maintained a garden. And the majority of the people that are gardening today, that is the primary reason why. And so there's been a generation that we've noticed through doing our studies with UC Berkeley uh, through their future food pathways that we realize there's a whole generation within our community of people who don't know what it's like to have a garden in their household and everybody, all their kids and stuff like that don't really know about gardening at all. But the people who do, they always say they have that fond memory and you can almost see them go back in their mind and talk about how special it was to them. Those neurological pathways need to be rebuilt within this next generation of children. So if we can have a generation of children that when they reach adulthood, they can say, and they are facing their own problems and obstacles in life, that when they dig deep into their subconscious and dig for answers, you know, they have the experiences, positive experiences of good mentors. They have the positive experiences of having access to fresh produce. They have these positive experiences of gardening with their families and they say, okay, I need to provide for my family today. I'm going to grow a garden because I know how to do that. You know, we want to be able to have these children look back on these building blocks because this right now in their time in the frame in their life from zero to eight, a large part of the subconscious is being developed. And if we can get as many positive experiences or reinforce traditional um, actions or cultural values, then the better off I believe these children will be in the future. So in my mind, we're utilizing micronutrients to combat the ill effects of socioeconomic depression within rural California communities by not just giving families a handout, but giving families a hand up so they have the ability to take care of themselves because we live in such a resilient community. We live amongst people who you know, strive to provide a better life for their children. And we want to give them the opportunity to do so. These are the people we're working with. And that's what's kind of interesting to people is that we're turning this whole idea of providing for a community upside down. And we're revitalizing foodways 
that have been, been lying dormant in our community because there's been this huge divide between fishermen and farmers in the Klamath Basin over water and the water wars that are affecting all of us. And in the eyes of the government, it's really nice because if Indians are fighting with farmers over drops of water from the bucket, then as they're diverting, you know, 80% of a river uh, down to Southern California, they're diverting, literally diverting, you know, thousands and thousands of gallons of water on a daily basis from the poorest communities in California. And they're diverting them to some of the richest agricultural uh, communities in the world. And then our governor on top of that right now has declared drought in California, but only for those agricultural communities. So there's no protection for our people up here where the water's coming from. And that's systematic oppression that we're facing today. So when we realize that these skills that we're learning on the river, these skills that we're learning as fishermen, these skills we're learning as beaters, and these skills we're learning as indigenous people are the strongest tool, these value systems are the strongest tool for colonization that has ever been developed through any generation, through any society. Why? Because for the first time in America, we're seeing politicians represent the people. We are seeing indigenous people in places of power that we've never seen before. And we have to utilize any opportunity we have to protect these places. And right now, the war over water in our community is tearing apart everything we've ever built. One, even if they ripped out all the dams today, right now, we still wouldn't have enough flow, proper flow in the river to meet the minimal need for a healthy salmon run. And if right now, the farmers on the upper basin, the government has allotted them 35,000 acres of water. Seems like a lot, right? But for a healthy harvest for them, they need 500,000 gallons of water. I mean, acre feet of water. And right now they're, they're allotted 35. Meanwhile, over 60 to 80% of the Trinity River is being diverted from our watershed down south to protected farmers who have no idea about reciprocity with the land. The concept does not exist for them. All it is is an extractive actions that are stacking money in a bank account. And that's what we're fighting against. Some of the richest people in the world, some of the most well-connected people in the world, and their number one competition for their money is indigenous people trying to feed their families. And right now, California's drought action plan proposed by Governor Newsom doesn't even include our communities. And that's what's scary is that here I figured if I spend my whole young life dedicated to fighting for you know, our rights, that there would be a break for our children. There'd be a break for this next generation. Like they wouldn't have to work as hard. But what I've realized now is that if you want to see the future of water look no farther than what's going on in the Klamath Basin. Because exactly what's happening to our people right now is happening to indigenous people all around the world. Exactly what's happening to our people right now is the face of modern colonization at its finest. 
But what's happening right now as well is we are raising a generation of gifted individuals who will have access to healthy foods at a very young age. They'll have access to education, indigenous-based education practices at a very young age. And we are grooming the next generation of leaders. And they, they don't even know. Because in reality, all we're doing is we're providing healthy opportunities for these children. And that's what's going to save all of us is that we continue to look at the children of the next generation as the people who are going to save us. We have to stop looking at these, ch these children as, you know, youngsters or kids, and we have to start looking at them as young elders, as people who will lead the next generation on this planet. Having said that, what I say is always invest in indigenous youth because are not just indigenous youth, but youth in general, give them responsibility. Let them understand what's going on. You're never too young. I remember at the age of 13, I was already facing, you know, problems that affected thousands of people. And I understood those things. And I wanted to help and I wanted to do something about it. And the opportunity was there for me to do something about it and to learn about it. These skills aren't just for indigenous people. These skills or for everybody, because no matter where you're from in this world, you come from this world. You come from somewhere. You have roots to this planet, this living being that we're all walking and we're all a part of. So we have to acknowledge that. And even if your roots are based in colonization, even if your grandfather was a straight killer, you have to admit that. You have to live with that. You have to grow from that and not let it define who you are today but let it inspire you to invest in the next generation so nobody has to experience that. Because a lot of people talk about historical trauma and they talk about indigenous people having historical trauma and all these things like heart disease and all these things that sprawl from it or are connected to it. When in reality, the historical resilience of our people is amazing. The fact that they went through every single stage of genocide that the American government could develop and still come out to develop societies that are leading the new world today and leading the conservation efforts across California. This is what we need to acknowledge. And understanding that these opportunities exist within Indian country, that the opportunities to learn from indigenous people is still here. I just, I just, I just always wish that people respected indigenous people and loved indigenous people like they respected indigenous artifacts, like they loved Indian stories. You know, and that's where we have to draw the line is that we have to acknowledge how important indigenous people are in the role of survival for all of humanity. Honey, there ain't nothing to it I'm gonna love you through it I've run away before But I'm not running anymore 
journey you just took us on with that response was so amazing. Um, Thank you for sharing all of those intersections and stories with us. Yeah, it was very deep and I'm really glad that you brought up the topic of drought in California and I wanted to bring up that one of the more recent studies the Yurok tribe participated in was alongside UC Davis's Superfund project which sought to identify contaminants on the Yurok Reservation. And similarly, one might assume that because so much of the land remains undeveloped, quote-unquote, folks should be healthier in terms of environmental pollution and toxins. But the tests that were run demonstrated the presence of many chemical toxins, including dioxins, mercury, various pesticides, and phenols. So can you share with us why there are such high rates of cancer in this area, and how the tribe is having to navigate the aftermaths of timberland management and illegal cannabis grows. It all falls back to the best, the easiest example I could use is the porcupine. As if you're a Californian and you from Northern California at a young age, you know, you realize you see a bunch of porcupines. And today you don't see very many porcupines. And you think it's because environmental impacts are, you know, we don't just don't have access to the lands where they are or whatever it may be. But in reality, you have to understand porcupines were wiped out. They were purposely killed, trapped, relocated, um, exterminated because they would eat the new saplings of trees that were replanted. Now, these trees weren't natural trees. They weren't uh, trees that you normally find in these area. They're kind of like timber trees. And so it all comes back to money why our land is so polluted is because Northern California has always been used as a giant bank account for California. If you look at the development of California from the railroads, you know, even California, why it's so long, why we are the longest state in the United States because of the railroads and because they wanted to, people wanted to avoid taxes being taxed, traveling through all the states and stuff. So if you just look at the way that money has evolved our way of life uh, um, it's just it's just astonishing to think that you know thousands and thousands and thousands of years of you know living in balance with our earth and our planet and making sure that these opportunities exist for our families to connect has been replaced with with poisons and toxins uh, all within the last hundred years And the reason why we have so many chemicals in these places and in our water sources and everything is because back in the day, the parks and timber companies used to spray, used to spray deadly chemicals everywhere, all over the place. And they knew indigenous people were utilizing these places and they didn't tell anybody, they didn't care. And lots of people were getting cancers because our elders or basket weavers we're putting all these materials in their mouth and they're utilizing it and we're putting our babies in the baskets that we create. And all these forever chemicals is what we know them as. We all know them as forever chemicals. We're sprayed everywhere. 
all in the name of conservation. So I like to tell people, if you are part of a conservation effort that does not put indigenous people at the forefront of the decision-making processes, if you are part of conservation effort that is not utilizing traditional based land management practices, then you are a part of modern colonization. And it's something that's so wild to think about that people who care about the environment can be colonizing indigenous lands at the same time, because that's always been the retreat. Well, I may not know about that, but I care about the environment, but I make sure these trees are still here. But the idea of conservation has roots in Christianity. Modern conservation has roots in Christianity to the point where you think these lands are sacred, so you don't touch them. You don't go near them. You keep everybody away from them because the American culture is so destructive. Even allowing people to be there will decimate it. And it's true. As Americans, you know, we're greedy. We have tendencies to not care as long as we're doing all right. But the indigenous value, but what that happens then is you get left with a system. You are cutting out an endangered species from that ecosystem that has been keeping it in balance for the last thousand years. And that species is my cousin. It's me. It's my brothers. It's my sisters. We are being cut out from these lands where we used to set fires to make sure that the underbrush didn't grow up to burn down the forest, to make sure that the creeks are cleared out so they're not being overbushed to make sure that these animals are kept in check and to make sure that the balance of this place is kept in check. That's our whole reason for living in existence right now as people of world renewal is to protect these lands and make sure that they are healthy. And modern conservation efforts are stopping us. Today, me as an individual, I've had guns pulled on me for fishing, I've been chased with a helicopter simply for fishing because a car was stolen 20 miles away and we look suspicious. You know what I mean? I've had been almost, I've had dragged into court for hunting elk on our ancestral territories in a completely legal manner. Been told I was to go to prison and I'd have to pay, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars in fines and lose my gun rights. I've been thrown down on the pier and detained, handcuffed, eight officers, cop dogs on us because a man in American flag Oscar was intimidated by our presence when we were crabbing on the pier. These modern methods of conservation are constantly creating opportunities for our people to be caught up in the system. And once our people are caught up in the system, it is so hard to escape. It's probably harder to it's probably harder to get out of the system than it is to quit drugs. Because everything you do, every aspect of your life, your current culture, which today's culture is a lot different than what people think of indigenous culture. Because like I said earlier, the traditions are things that our families have always done. Our cultures is our daily living experiences. And right now, our culture is if you're caught in the system and you can't afford to make it to your probation meeting, you can go back to jail. If you can't make it to your meeting or if you mess up or if any of these things, you're caught in so far up in the system, it takes years to get out. 
And that all stems from not allowing indigenous people access to our lands, to our ceremonies, to, you have to realize it was illegal for my grandparents, my great grandfather to be indigenous and was punishable by death. He was born in 1912. And that was two years. And I remember that because everybody in the family was happy because it was almost two full years before you could legally, after they made it illegal to take somebody's scalp for money, indigenous people's scalp for money. So it's not even that long ago, the government promised people in Northern California, if you exterminate the indigenous filth people on your land, and you can prove to us by showing us scalps of men, women, and children that you did so, we'll give you the land. And then you can make money and get rich off the timber industry. These are the type of systems that modern conservation comes from. Keeping people off your land. Stopping people from being there. These are what we're facing today. And a part of that process was spraying chemicals on plants. When you can no longer just walk up and scalp somebody, it was spraying chemicals on plants. It was making sure any of the plants that they needed or why they were there aren't there no more. Making sure that the animals that they needed aren't there no more. Making sure that they have no access to these points. These are the things that I'm facing on a daily basis as I try to fight for the health of your children. And I do this with very little funding. We do this with very little support. We may not live to see the results, but we're going to do what's right. We may end up in prison, but we're going to do what's right. I may lose my rights as an American, but we're going to do what's right. And so far, it's worked. So far, I haven't lost my rights. So far, I haven't never been to jail. I've never been to prison. Because I've had so much support behind me and in front of me and to the side of me, and we're all come together. Because if we try to tackle this on our own, just the Yurok tribe, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have the success we have today. I'm so thankful for the leadership we have because they enabled us to build these connections with neighboring tribes to ensure that indigenous-based land management practices are heard on a statewide level. We have ensured that conservation efforts have included indigenous people. And if you look today, we face our own problems. The governor of California was in a redwood canoe on our river talking to our people about the importance of this water basin. And just the other week, turned around and denied us relief or access to say our communities are in dire need because of the drought. That was only, the only people allowed access to those were agricultural district farmers. So again, if you are part of a system or if you are a part of a conservation effort that doesn't put indigenous people at the forefront of the decision-making process or doesn't implement traditional based land management practices and, and work with the tribes and indigenous local people, you are a part of modern colonization and you have to change that today. Mm -hmm. Yes. Thank you for speaking so clearly and strongly to this. I'm really with you and yeah, there's so much to take in from what you just shared. And yeah, I'm thinking about this scene in Gather where you and members of the Ancestral Guard are going out to, to fish 
and you're teaching uh, a young member about the importance of respecting the seals and not interfering with their presence or habitat. And I'm thinking about this fear of men's work in context to healing from a patriarchal system. And I wonder if you could share a bit about bringing back balance to our relationship with each other, specifically how Ancestral Guard is teaching young boys and men about respect. Yeah, I was raised, a lot of my, a lot of the men in my family have been caught up in the system for doing that, just hunting and trying to take care of their families, whether it be growing cannabis to provide for their household or whether it be hunting on park lands or private lands, which are indigenous territories. A lot of our uh, male mentors have been caught up in the system or died young. And my grandmother was a very strong woman. She fought for indigenous health care when people told her, you know, she was crazy for doing that. And my other grandmother fought for indigenous um, education when people told her she was crazy for doing that. And we've had so many powerful women, you know, leading the way for our people from the dam removal efforts to securing our rights as indigenous people to, you know, being able to provide to our people today. And even in our organization, it's the women in our organization are all, our, our whole board, all of our, most of our board members are indigenous women. And that's by design because the knowledge and the abilities that have been slept on by, you know, America is just astonishing because indigenous women have always held power in our culture and in our traditions and our way of life. So respecting women and having that boundary, those, those boundaries with men and women and just all people of our community in between, you know, whether it's, you know, you know, whether you're in transition phase or whether you're, you know, whatever it is going on, whatever your pronouns are, you know, there's that respect and there's that medicine that we all abide by. And when you're fighting for your rights, that stuff, none of that depicted changing, like creating divide between people. It doesn't matter when we're all being affected by the same, um, by the same sickness, which are these dams. So in our community, having the ability to see strong women in roles of leadership positions from a young age have carved out a respect for, I don't even know, a respect for life. It's hard to even think about it because it's just so ingrained in us that, you know, I've never thought of women as being less capable or, you know, we've never, it's just not like that. They are always the powerful people in all of our stories and everything. And growing up, having all these positive experiences has really led to me being able to say, I love you. And that's one thing I want to tell people too, and especially young men. Me, I've been in more fistfights than Zoom calls. And, you know, as a fisherman, I've spent most of my life on the river. And having, you know, having the ability to say, I love you to another human being is so important. It shouldn't matter if it's a man, woman, uh, transgender, anybody, just a human being, being able to say, I love you is so important. It's so important that there's different words for it in our culture. There's perversity check, which means I love you. And like that perversity check means I love you from like 
to your wife or to your husband or to your significant other. Where Naluchek means I love you as my family member. I love for you. I care for you in like a platonic way, but in the most deepest sense. And a prime, a prime example is just the other day, we had a loss of somebody in our community who drowned at the mouth of the Klamath River. And um, one of the last things, he was one of my best friends. And one of the last things he said to me was, I love you. And I said, I love you too. And he drove off in this huge boat. And, you know, being able to have that be the last words that we shared it's, it brings a sense of closure and it brings a sense of, of everything's going to be all right. You know what I mean? Cause some people don't get that opportunity because they don't want to seem weak, but showing love doesn't make you weak. Showing love and seeing that it's not reciprocated or it's not given back to you and doing nothing about it makes you weak. Because if you're doing your best to live a good life and taking care of yourself mentally, physically, spiritually, and you're trying to share that wealth with people and they're not bringing it back to you. And if they're not showing you the same love, that's not your Natantmer. That's what, I mean, that's what we say is a Natantmer means your close ones. It could be anybody. It could be your brother, your sister, your cousin, your friend, as long as they're your close ones. And they're, and we say our Natantmer are the people who love you, who love you back. And that's the roughest English translation that there is. But if you don't share that, if that love isn't there and you're not feeling that love, you don't do anything to change that. That's weakness. But if you yourself understand that, and if you stop investing so much of your precious time and energy into people, organizations, and places who aren't showing that reciprocity, who aren't loving you back, then you need to make a change in your life. Because once you start, surrounding yourself with people who you love who love you back everybody understands how important it is to protect this land and these places so we can continue to provide that opportunity and these are values of world renewal that transcend everything that i do on a daily basis they transcend through programmings through you know conversations for the way that I get into relationships, to the way I end relationships, these values are constantly at play. And that's where we can utilize indigenous values of world renewal without appropriating the culture of world renewal. And the easiest example for me to explain how that works is I feel like I'm in the best position to talk about this because not too long ago, I took that 23andMe test found out on there it said like i'm a big part Saptista, and i was so excited but you didn't see me go down there and just try to take from them or take from their culture and just bring it in back home with me and use it however i see fit or put it into my culture or use it you know what i mean and just take from them no i did research i figured out i learned i immersed myself in the knowledge not just of just past the basic Google research, but trying to reach out to people, you know? And it's that kind of thing that is, is lost in modern appreciation, uh, modern acknowledgement. Because people think it's okay for me to appropriate this culture because I acknowledge the importance of it. In reality, no, no, just don't do that. Just be appreciative that you can hold the same values 
as somebody else and you can hold those same values and you can hold people accountable to those values, which is the most important thing. Because once you take care of yourself, the most important thing is you don't let people walk all over you. You don't let people treat you with disrespect. You don't let people do that to you. And that's where that power comes from. And knowing who you are, knowing where you stand right now, and knowing who stands with you gives you that power to take care of these places. And I have my ancestors to thank for that because no matter what they went through, the rape, the molestation, um, the Christian culture, which devoured our way of life, all these things that they faced, they came home and they taught us these values and they implemented them into our lives. So we may do the same one day. Mm, so beautiful. And on Ancestrals Guards Instagram, there's a post that shares the following quote, the world needs your positivity more than ever. As people of world renewal, it is our responsibility to reconnect with the rhythmic elements of our planet, end quote. And as we come to a close, I wonder if you could share any reflections you have on the responsibility you have to renewal. And also, where can people connect and support further the ancestral guard? You know, the way I look at it is I don't think, I don't see it as a culture that I make time for. It's more of like, this is my life and I make time for other things, <laughs> you know? So it's, it's, it's really hard for me to differentiate, uh, differentiate like why it's so important and why it's a part of my everyday life. Because it's not something I can just turn off. It's not something I can just walk away from. Because no matter where I'm at in this world, no matter what I'm doing, even if I'm robbing banks, I'm still going to be a man of world renewal. And there's nothing I can do to change that. Because it's in my blood. It's in my DNA. It's within my subconscious. And I believe that we all have the ability to, to realize what's right and what's wrong. It's not black and white, but it's what's right right now and what's wrong right now. What is, works best for you in your life? You know, it's applying these values to daily decisions that will elevate your experience as a living human being. And that's what it comes down to. You don't have to go try to save the world and take the problems of the world and throw them on your shoulders. Do not do that because that's how you're going to get burnt out. And once you get burnt out, people don't need you. And once they, people don't need you, they don't worry about you. But if you're strong and if you maintain who you are, your integrity to why you're even in this, you know, exist, why you're even existing in the first place, once you, you know, you, you find your own strength and realize that you can't derive strength from anywhere else except from within you. Trust doesn't come anywhere from within you. Love doesn't come anywhere except for within you so you have to understand that applying these values to your daily life is one of the most important things you can do to help me to help anybody just take care of yourself take care of the people you love and make sure you take care of the land that you're living on but if you would like to learn more if you'd like to you know come check us out we do traditional redwood canoe rides for people on the Klamath River to kind of help experience and you know, really immerse people in why we are fighting so hard to protect this place, come through. 
have, enjoy conversation, eat some salmon with us at our garden. And if you want to support the work we're doing, you can reach out through email at naturerightscouncil.org or you can email me or you can Instagram us or Facebook me or just reach out if that's what you feel like you need to do. Otherwise, just take care of yourself and provide healthy opportunities for the youth in your life because that's what somebody did for me. And it's something that I'm so thankful for that I will continue to do for the rest of my life. Mm. Wow, Samuel, this has been such an incredible time to spend together in just so much wisdom that you're slinging our way. <laughs> Thank you so much for all the work that you've done, clearly both, you know, on the outside, but also so much inner work that you have sorted through to be able to come to this work and to this earth in the way you do. So I just want to say I'm so grateful for all that you are doing and have done in the past and will continue to do for the future and for the while definitely stands with you in your work. And um, for those of you who have been moved by this conversation, I really think that, you know, head over to Ancestral Guard and um, watch Gather so you can see Samuel in his land doing what he does. <laughs> so thanks Yeah, so thank much. you. Gather will be out on Netflix in November 1st, I believe, so you'll be easier to access. And we also have a documentary out on YouTube right now called Guardians of the River, which is kind of like a sequel to Gather because it kind of explains about, you know, where we're at in our gardens right now and about dam removal. So if you got some time, if you haven't been tired or listened to me talk already, go ahead and check that out. Thank you for listening to For the Wild podcast. The music you heard today was by Lake Mary, All the Queen's Ravens, and Jess Williamson. For the Wild is created by Ayana Young, Erica Ekram, Francesca Glassbell, and Julia Jackson.